Okay, we are on page Zion Amabez, 87b, and we are starting a new parak, a new chapter, the 10th chapter of this Masechta, of this tractate. And the new Mishnah will begin by discussing uh, the topic of how much proof is necessary in order to prove that a, a woman's husband passed away. Now, a little bit of background is that in general, when it comes to testimony about Anything related to what's referred to as ishos, anything related to uh, marriage, divorce, um, different proofs of um, illicit relationships, all of that requires two aidim, two witnesses. They need to come, the two witnesses have to come to court um, to, uh, to witness and to testify uh, about what they saw. And there's a whole process within that, which is in, in a separate track date, but they have to testify in order for us to uh, accept their testimony. And also when it comes to a marriage, we need two people to see the marriage, to sign on the ksuba. Uh, we always require two witnesses. There are a few places in the Torah and by, by the Rabbanan, by, the, by, the, by Chazal, by the rabbis, where... They are more lenient and they only require one witness. Only one witness is required. And one of those examples is the case of our Mishnah. Our Mishnah is a case where a husband uh, leaves, is goes on a trip um, and is away. And there's a one witness who comes back and tells his wife that he saw that, his, that her husband died. He's a, he's, a, he's a witness to the fact that her husband died. So in that scenario, we say that one witness is in fact believed. Now, the reason why we believe that one witness um, is, it could be for a few reasons, and it could be a combination of these reasons. One is that this is something which is referred to as Iglai Milsi. Uh, it's uh, Iglai Milsa, that it's uh, something which it will come about. Meaning this witness, if the husband didn't die, uh, so then the husband could come back at any moment. And then this witness will found will be found to be a, a, very clearly a false witness. So this is something which, if, he, if the husband actually didn't die, then it'll be very easy to disprove this testimony. And so therefore, he must be telling the truth. Otherwise, he wouldn't lie about this. It'll be quite obvious uh, that he's lying because the husband will just be able to return. Uh, that's one factor. And a second factor is that the rabbi said because... In such a scenario where it's so hard to find, it's hard to find witnesses, and it's and it's going to be very difficult for his wife unless uh, she would need proof that her husband passed away in order for her to uh, remarry. Uh, so as a result of that, we were lenient, and we said we're lenient to to rely on this one witness. However, we want you to make sure that you, the wife, did all the research that you could do. You should really look into it. It's upon you the wife, to do all this research, <coughs> excuse me, and if you come to the conclusion that, you know what, my husband really passed away, my husband died, so then that's on you, we let you uh, remarry, it's on you, you can remarry, however, uh, in, in order to make sure that she really looks into it, there are various uh, kenasos, there are various fines and penalties that were put in place that what happens if the husband does in fact return? If the husband returns, so then, uh, as we will see, this is what the, the list of the Mishnah is about. Uh, there are various fines which will then happen uh, as a result of the fact that she didn't 
she was wrong that she uh, she didn't do enough research. Um, she didn't do sufficient research, and as a result, and as a result of that, we we try to make sure that she does the research because she knows that if she's actually wrong, so then uh, there'll be various penalties that are put into place. So says the Mishnah, Ha'isha shahalach medina sayam. A woman whose husband goes on a, uh, goes away is is away and uh, in a faraway place, especially in the days of the Mishnah. Once they're traveling, so then you could, uh, you know, you can't reach them. It's very, it's very hard to hear back from them. So above Amrula, and then we have witnesses. Really, it's just one witness. It's one witness. The, some of the commentators point out the reason why it says it in the plural is because it would also work not just through one witness, which is a, a leniency, but also what's referred to as aid me aid. Even if it's not a witness, but it's a witness who heard it from a witness, which in general is not accepted in court for one witness to say that I wasn't there, but I heard it from the actual witness. That in general is not accepted in court, but it would be accepted in this case. Another another leniency. And they say, that your husband died. So what did she do? So she uh, relies on this one witness. We let her rely on this one witness. It's perfect. It's, it's, it's fine to do. Vinicius, and so she marries somebody else. But then what happens is that afterwards, so the husband comes, the first husband comes back, and uh, this is a big problem. So if the first husband comes back, even before we get to the penalties, by the uh, by, the letter of the law, even before we get on, come on to the penalties, by the letter of the law, she was never viewed as married to the second husband. She was always married to the first husband. She she never got divorced. The husband never died. She was always married to the first husband. As such, uh, she doesn't technically she doesn't need a divorce document from the second husband. Um, that wouldn't be required. And also by the letter of the law, it's not viewed as committing adultery because by the letter of the law, she did all that. You know, she we, we let her get married, so it wasn't it wasn't intentional uh, that we uh, that we uh, it wasn't intentionally committing adultery, um, and so therefore, technically, she should be able to if she committed adultery, she's not allowed to stay married to her original husband. She's not allowed to marry uh, the the person that she committed adultery with. That would be a prohibition. However, by the letter of the law, in this case, perhaps she should be able to return back to her original husband. However. As a knas, as a, a fine, as a penalty, we, the rabbis, will view this as though she committed adultery. This is this is sort of the the penalty that they put into place that we tell her basically, you're you go ahead and you should do the research, as much research as you could possibly do, uh, and rely on this one witness, and you should be of the understanding that if he ends up coming back, so then we will view this as adultery. That's essentially what we tell her. It's viewed as adultery. And as such, the, the penalty is, she has to get divorced from her first husband uh, because, because it's like adultery. And she has to get divorced from her second husband. Technically, she doesn't have to get divorced from her second husband because she was never married to her second husband. Uh, but we do require uh, them. To, she, has to, she has to leave. She has to leave her second husband. And she has to get divorced from her first husband and from the second uh, husband. That's also necessary. The Gemara will explain why that is. Uh, we'll not explain it now. And then there's also the Ainlak Suba She doesn't receive any of the benefits of marriage from either marriage, from neither from the first husband or nor from the second husband. She doesn't receive her Ksuba money, the money that received that in general uh, a woman would, would receive um, as a the promise from the husband to uh, to to pay after a divorce or after his death, 
and she doesn't receive, uh, she doesn't get back the payros, the fruit that the husband ate from during the marriage. She doesn't receive uh, support. She, does, she doesn't receive the, the financial support uh, to that, let's say she borrowed money in order to feed herself. She doesn't get paid back for that. Um, and she also, uh, if there's old clothing of hers that was worn out, uh, so then she also, that's also part of the ksuba, and uh, she wouldn't get paid back um, from the original amount. So these are all different uh, different fines. And if she ends up taking it, these, uh, these financial benefits, these monetary benefits, so then she has to return it. Just return it. We say also that the child is a mamzer from both, let's say she has children from the second husband, so then that child is a mamzer, because that is a form of uh, adult, that's adultery, so that would for sure be a mamzer. Not only that, but even if she returns, not from the children from before he left, but if she returns back to living with her first husband, so then we say that the children from that relationship would also be a mamzer on a rabbinic level. <coughs> Excuse me, not on a biblical level, but on a rabbinic level, the children would be viewed as mamzerim. This is all part of the knas, of this uh, penalty. Not only that, but also uh, neither one, if they're a Kohen, so then they cannot uh, be involved in the bur- in her burial, even though a Kohen could be involved. They can, in general, go to cemetery, but if it's, a, if it's an immediate relative, so then they could. They could go for a wife. But in this case, we say that they cannot go to the cemetery uh, for this particular wife. And also the benefits that the husband receives in a marriage, neither husband gets those benefits. What were what are those benefits? Um, he doesn't collect doesn't be, collect uh, anything that she uh, she gains over the course of the marriage. Whatever whatever profit she makes does not go back to the husband. Um, also, the husband doesn't have the right to annul her vows, which in general she does if it impacts him as well. If those vows impact him as well. He doesn't have that right in this case. Um, so that's a penalty also upon him. The truth is that even though this is unintentional, um, she still becomes, even if she was uh, a daughter of Yisrael, she was a Yisrael, she becomes disqualified from marrying a Kohen. Because we say that when it comes to the Kuhuna, this is a principle that we've had in the past, that when it comes to the Kuhuna, even if it is unintentional, uh, and that she has a certain illicit relationship which is unintentional, so then that too uh, will disqualify her from uh, joining the kahuna, from marrying a Kohen. Ubas levi mina meiser. Not only that, if she's a levi, so then she can no longer eat meiser. Uh, presumably this is within the opinion that we've had in the past of Rav Meir, who we do not follow, where Rav Meir says that only a levi and a Kohen are allowed to eat meiser. So uh, somebody who had this relationship she would also not allowed to be, eat meiser. Ubas kohen minat truma, and she, she's a kohen, so then she's not not allowed to eat uh, truma. She would be disqualified from eating truma. Ve'en yorshin selzev yorshin zezet yorshin esksubasa. The yorshin, those who inherit uh, from the husbands, this is an idea which won't get into now, but it will be explained by the Gemara. They do not inherit from her ksuba. And if the husband dies and they die without children. So then both brothers, they would have to do chalitza and naibam. Why is that? So for the original husband, it makes sense why he would have to do chalitza because they're, they're married. They're viewed as, as married. They have to get divorced. But he died before they got divorced. 
So then the brother-in-law is not allowed to do Yibam. We tell him to do Chalitza because they were supposed to get divorced anyway. So go ahead and do Chalitza. And when it comes to the second husband, she was never really married to the second husband. Uh, but we still say, go ahead and you should proactively do Chalitza um, on a rabbinic level just to make sure in case people think that she really got divorced and she really was viewed as married to the second husband. So we say, go ahead and do Chalitza on a rabbinic level. Okay, those are all of the uh, penalties that are mentioned by the first opinion. This is all from the first opinion. The mission now will discuss some of the nuances that we've mentioned and how other Tanayim, other rabbis from the times of the Mishnah, disagree with regards to the nuances. However, it is very important to keep in mind that from the broader perspective, from the bigger picture, everybody agrees that there is a concept of these penalties in order to make sure that when she initially gets married to her second husband, that she really looked into the matter very well. Um, and uh, she came to the conclusion that she could go ahead and get married. Um, and so there are these various fines about having to get divorced from both husbands, um, the first and the second one, and a lot of the other uh, details that we've mentioned. But there are some disputes about some of the, some of the details. So Rabiosi, for example, Rabiosi says, Ksubasa nukse bayla harishon. So again, this is... Uh, an idea that we'll get to in the Gemara, but essentially uh, she will receive the Ksuba she does get from the first husband. Rebbe Lazar says that when it comes to all these penalties, according to the first opinion, the husbands are also, the husband's also penalized and he cannot uh, get what he, what he deserves from the marriage. So Rebbe Lazar says, no, that's not true. That's not true. He, he is allowed to annul her vows. Uh, he is allowed to uh, receive some of the uh, financial, monetary benefits that she received over the course of the marriage. Uh, Rabbi Lazar disagrees with that point. Rabbi Shimon also disagrees with a different point. Rabbi Shimon, he says that no, when it comes, if the first husband were to pass away before they got divorced, so then the brother, it's true, we told, we told them to get divorced, but he, the, the husband passed away before they could get divorced. So then the brother, in a case of Yibam, is allowed to do Yibam. The first opinion said that they have to do Chalitza, Rabbi Shimon says, no, they're allowed to do Yibam. And again, we'll discuss a lot of these uh, these uh, issues in the Gemara. Ve'en havlad mimenu mamzer. Rabbi Shimon also disagrees and says that the child from the first husband is not viewed as a mamzer. If she, got, if she lived and, and got back together with her first husband, the child would not be viewed as a mamzer because she was always married to the first husband and so therefore the child is not a mamzer. It wouldn't be viewed as uh, being prohibited to marry the the her to stay married to her original husband uh, because this was unintentional, says the mission now and it discusses other other cases. However, if she gets married not based on one witness but based on two witnesses, if we have two witnesses, so then certainly we can rely on she can rely on two witnesses and we can rely on two witnesses. She doesn't have to do any research if there are two witnesses. And so if there are two witnesses, so then everybody agrees that she's allowed to return back to her first husband. There are two witnesses that say that her husband died. She went ahead and married somebody else. The husband comes back. We say she is in fact allowed to return back to her husband. That is for sure true. The only time we have all these rules are only when, it's only when uh, there's only one, win, one witness. <coughs> Excuse me. Nisei salpi beizdin. Teitzei v'peturmin ha-korban. Lo nisei salpi beizdin. Teitzei v'chayevs v'korban. Uh, now it goes back to discuss another difference between whether it's one witness or two witnesses. If there's one witness, 
so then, based on what witness, we told her to go ahead and get married. It was based on us. We allowed it, meaning we, the Bayesian, we, the courts, said that we'll make an exception to the rule here and say you could go ahead and get married. As a result of that, so therefore, uh, she doesn't have to bring a korban, a sacrifice for her sin, because it really came from the, the court. Uh, ironically, however, if it's two witnesses, so the two witnesses, they come to court. However, it's not because of the court. The court is not, the two witnesses tell us just uh, what the reality is, at least what we assume the reality is. Um, and as such, it's not a decision which is brought about by the court, but it's what the reality is based on the two witnesses. And so therefore, um, in a scenario where there are two witnesses that say that her husband died, but then her husband comes back, so then she would be obligated to bring a korban, a sacrifice of a sin offering, because uh, it wasn't that she did this um, from the court, but it, it was really uh, just uh, it was relying on the witnesses, and as such, she is obligated in a korban, in a sacrifice. Now, just to point out parenthetically that uh, that issue is a big discussion. Why that is? Why should that be? If there are two witnesses, in the end of the day, she was following the rules. If she was following the rules, so then she, it wasn't a sin. She shouldn't have to bring a sin offering. Um, so there's a lot to discuss on that topic. Unfortunately, we don't have the time in this recording. Finally, the Mishnah continues and concludes, uh, This shows us that the Bezin, when the court makes a certain ruling, it's even greater than the two witnesses because when the court made the ruling with one witness and said, go ahead, you're allowed to go ahead and get married, just make sure, do the research. But it came from the court, so then that exempted her from uh, bringing a sacrifice if the husband came back and uh, really uh, the husband was alive. So then this would exempt her from bringing a sin offering. However, if it was just based on two witnesses, so then she would still be obligated to bring a sin offering. The last line, a haru However, it concludes the Mishnah that we only say that she's exempt from a korban, from a sacrifice of a sin offering, if she listened to the court. The court said, go ahead and get married. You're allowed to get married to somebody who you're permissive, you're, you're allowed to get married to. So then in such a scenario, we'll say that you're exempt from bringing a sin offering. However, let's say she went ahead. The court said you could get it, go ahead and get married, but then she married somebody that she's not allowed to get married to. So she marries somebody that she's not allowed to get married to. So even though the court said you could go ahead and get married, but now uh, we view it as though you didn't listen to the court and you would have to bring a sin offering uh, for for what uh, for what you did and the fact that uh, you hadn't hadn't had this relationship when in fact now we find out that the husband was really alive the whole time. Okay, so that concludes the Mishnah. We'll conclude here with this recording with just the Mishnah alone. The Mishnah was a lot a lot of different details in the Mishnah, but essentially. This is one of the cases, one of the few cases where we'll say we could rely on one witness alone. We don't need two witnesses, we can rely on one witness alone because, as we mentioned in the beginning, uh, he sh- that witness uh, wouldn't be lying because it would be obvious to prove that he's wrong. And in addition to that, a combination of factors about the fact that uh, the wife will do enough research to look into the matter to know with a certain level of certainty that the husband is no longer alive and then she'll get married to her second husband because otherwise she knows that if the husband comes back, so then we have all these various penalties and, and that, uh, that happen as a result of the fact that the husband was really alive the entire time, which was discussed as, as was discussed in the Mishnah. We will continue with the Gemara in the next recording.